So I think uh, some of you guessed that I like to read and recommend books. And for a change, let me warn you against the book. And now that I got your attention, you're probably going to go read it anyways. Oh, well, it's entitled The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli and written about 500 years ago. If I could summarize it succinctly, it promotes the idea that rulers must secure personal glory and the success of the state at whatever the cost, even at the cost of one's ethical standards. The end justifies the means. That's the main point there. And here's some quotes that will make you cringe. Quote, it is better to be feared than love if you cannot be both. Politics have no relation to morals. A prince never lacks legitimate reasons to break his promise. Now, some suggest that the author is being somewhat facetious, that his book is actually a satire. After all, it was written in Italian, the common language of the people. A citizen would have put down the book after reading it and, and conclude, well, if that's what it means for a prince to be good, then I don't want one. That means we're not 100% sure if Machiavelli himself believes all that he writes in The Prince. There's some vagueness there. But thankfully, we have a much better book, wherein God clearly tells us, reveals what a good ruler looks like. It's the Bible. The infallible scriptures guide us in this fallen world. When, let's face it, Politics does often seem disconnected from morality. And in today's passage, I believe we'll get some help in defining good leadership. Even if it's far from perfect, in it we observe in the passage, David in his low moments. But then he immediately proves himself to be a man after God's own heart. Just some... Introductory notes as we wrap up 2 Samuel, I remind you that in its uh, last four chapters, it, it's like a forming an epilogue of sort. Uh, Content-wise, it captures the essence of David's character and leadership. Structure-wise, big chunks of these chapters are arranged in what's called a chiasm. This is when words or concepts are repeated in reverse order. Picture here an ABC, C prime, B prime, A prime pattern. And let me start at the middle of the chiasm today and work my way outwardly, centrifugally. So C's, then B's, and A's. And C and A, C prime are the two poems at the center of the chiasm. The first lengthier poem corresponds to C, and it's in chapter 22. The second shorter poem corresponds to C prime, chapter 23, 1 to 7. Moving on from C's to B's, B and B prime correspond to the second half of chapter 21 and the second half of chapter 23, respectively. You find in these verses the names and great accomplishments of David's best warriors. Moving on from B's to A's, we have two national crises, A corresponds to the front portion of chapter 21 and A prime to chapter 24, which we'll cover today. You see how Israel suffers 
from the mistakes of their rulers, once because of their former king Saul, and another time because of their current king, David. In both instances, David takes decisive actions so that the God of Israel heeded the prayer for the land. Now let's look at 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aror on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Patim, Hochi. They came to Don, Ja'an, and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to South Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the numbers, number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gath, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arana went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take an offer of whatever seems good to him. Look here, oxen for burnt sacrifice, 
and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arana, Now, but I will surely buy it. No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Second Samuel 24 begins with the Lord aroused in anger against Israel. It ends with the Lord withdrawing the plague from Israel. Internally, what keeps the narrative flow going are David's guilt-stricken reactions. In, so you see there, uh, first to the numbering of his people, secondly to the suffering of his people. That creates a threefold outline, and that deals with, I think, three things, conscription, condemnation, and consecration. First, the conscription. See how the king orders the census of Israel and Judah and Joab and his captains completed. The result is that David knows how many fighters are available for wartime. That's all in verses 1 to 9. But then you see the transition in verse 10. After he had numbered the people, David's heart condemns him. So secondly, the middle portion of verses 10 to 16 are all about condemnation. With the help of Gad the prophet, the greatly distressed king considers the outcome of his foolish leadership. Then we have David's shepherd-like reaction in verse 17 when he saw the angel who was striking the people. That leads the king to speak with Gad once again, and then to the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, and the rest of the chapter. The specific locations is especially important, so we consider consecration from verses 17 to 25. And I'll deal with the details as we go along, but let me now just tell you the, in advance three principles for living as men and women after God's own heart. First, ask God to weigh your heart motives. Ask God to weigh your heart motives. That's verses 1 to 9. Secondly, confess to God when your heart condemns. Confess to God when your heart condemns. That's verses 10 to 16. Thirdly, worship God with the heart of sacrifice. Worship God with the heart of sacrifice. That's verses 17 to 25. First, ask God to weigh your heart motives. Now, even with the benefit of divine insight and human hindsight, there are some puzzling aspects of this passage. Why was the Lord angry with Israel? How did God move David against them? What's wrong with the king wanting to know his population totals? Doesn't Proverbs 14.28 say, a multitude of people is a king's honor? Why did God allow similar census back in Numbers 1, but not here? The scriptures do answer some of these questions, 
enough that we can get a fuller picture of what's going on here, even if it's not a complete picture. And consider the additional verses, the following, uh, put them together and like puzzle pieces. And one key passage is 1 Chronicles 21. In fact, you might want to just put a bookmark there or put your finger there because we'll be going back to it a lot. It retells the story in 2 Samuel 24. It says in the first verse of that parallel passage, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. If your eyes are shifting back and forth between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, you have to ask, wait, so who opposed, uh, who's opposed to Israel? Who's the one moving King David to number them? Keep in mind that the word moved is the same exact word in those two verses. Is it God or is it Satan? Now, there's no contradiction here, nor do we attribute evil to God. Here's how I see the order of events. First, Israel offended the Lord and angered them somehow. Next, to punish his people, God permitted Satan to stand up against the nation. The the enemy strategized to move David to number the population. In all this, we must recognize that Israel was wrong, David was wrong, and Satan was wrong. God is not wrong in all this. He's always sovereign and holy. As sovereign, he's the ultimate mover while Satan's his tool. The Lord acts sovereignly without being subject to sin because he's the Holy One of Israel. Remember the truth of James 1, 13 to 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So God can allow Satan to tempt and allow us to fall into Satan's temptation, but the Lord himself is not to blame. There's some parallel in the way God let Job fall into Satan's power and hand. Yet Job was theologically accurate to say that this adversity came from the Lord. A New Testament example would be Paul. God sent him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And yet it was with the Lord that the apostle pleaded for relief. That suffering kept Paul humble. And perhaps the same lesson was in store for David and by extension Israel. Perhaps David in his great authority had sort of like a Nebuchadnezzar moment. You know, he, maybe he entertained thoughts like, is not this great Israel that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Try to rephrase Daniel 4.30 there. Maybe he had that kind of thought. Maybe the people in their abundant prosperity sat in their heart in accordance with Deuteronomy 8. My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. This is why it's so vital to ask God to weigh your heart motives. Even if outwardly a census appears harmless, we take David at his word when he says in verse 10, his heart condemned him as he sinned greatly and acted foolishly. We have to dig deeper 
penetrate beyond the mere surface level of our decisions. That's because we easily deceive ourselves. As the Proverbs warn us, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Open up God's truthful word, and may it open up our deceitful hearts to expose it. Let the scriptures be a scalpel for surgery, the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Well, David totally skipped over asking God. He also ignored the multitude of counselors who advised against him. Not only Joab, but also his captains. That should have been a major speed bump that forced David to slow down. But it wasn't, and David didn't slow down. So Joab obeyed the king's command. For those interested in biblical geography, the route he takes is generally in a counterclockwise direction on a standard map, moving east, north, west, and south of Jerusalem. Included were tribal and subdued territories, tributaries of David's empire. The whole process takes about 10 months. We're told in 1 Chronicles 21 that Joab wasn't that thorough with his effort, and it seems even in his submission of the numbers, he was still sort of protesting this move. But it's not the calculation of Joab that matter as much as the miscalculation of David's leadership here. So we go on to verses 10 to 16 and learn how to confess to God when your heart condemns. This chapter reminds us that even though David has come a long way, he's far from perfect. I think we should still recognize some growth in his character. Earlier when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, he allowed weeks and months to pass by before his confession. And even that confession came after a confrontation by Nathan. But here's a more mature David. He doesn't wait long. He takes initiative. He acts quickly, even even before the sin's consequences manifest. He's praying for forgiveness even before Prophet Gad arrives next morning. By the way, concerning that phrase in verse 10, David's heart condemned him. In the original language, you find the same exact phrase back in 1 Samuel 24, verse 5. Recall that's when he secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe while hiding out as a fugitive. But David's conscience bothered him to the point he had to confess to Saul the damage it caused him, slight as it is. We got to have the same sensitivity to sin as David did. It doesn't matter whether a sin is categorically venial or mortal, private or public, inward or outward. God sees it all. Included in lists of sins in the Bible are sins in every dimension of life. That ranges from secret pride to open rebellion. Any and all of these faults would disqualify us from heaven, condemn us to hell. Like David, we must recognize the foolishness and the wickedness of our sin before the wise and holy God. 
since those who are not born again Christians might listen to this message, I have to talk about the gospel. We need to tell to others that we need to get right with God. We need a relationship with the Lord, one that David had. Going back to verse 10, how is it that David, after sinning, would dare to ask the Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant? Why should he be assured of forgiveness? Is he delusional to believe what he wrote in Psalm 32, 1-2, that he's blessed, that his transgressions forgiven, his sin covered, that the Lord does not impute iniquity to him, that there's no deceit in his spirit? On what basis does God cancel David's offense as he did earlier when he committed adultery and murder? Remember, Prophet Nathan did say to him in chapter 12, verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin. Similar language there. Well, David knew dimly what we believers know today clearly. The Lord takes away the iniquity of us, his sinful servants, Because he has laid on Jesus, his holy servant, the iniquity of us all. That's what happened at the cross. Christ's soul became an offering for sin. He became our substitute, paying in full the penalty of sin we committed. He rose again from the grave and after proving that he truly lives, he ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Until then, we must confess our great evil, turn from sin, trust in Jesus. We cannot earn or deserve heaven. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the good news. We can live in complete confidence that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As we lean on the works of Jesus and not on our own works, we enjoy an unbreakable relationship with our Father in heaven. So even as we as his children inevitably fail at times, we're assured that God is greater than our hearts that condemn us. And because of our hearts, we have to constantly hear God's voice through the Bible. Now that gets us back to the story. After confessing, David wakes up next morning to hear the word of the Lord through Gad. Uh, He's a prophet we met a while ago in 1 Samuel 22. What's evident from Gad's message is that even if David's assured of righteousness by faith alone, even if believers are free from the eternal consequences of sin, there are temporal consequences to face. Even if we escape God's wrath, we cannot escape his loving discipline. That's true at all times. Now what's unique here is how the Lord gave David a choice in the matter, a choice among three consequences, In the descending order of Lent, there are seven years of famine, which I think may have been negotiated down to three years, three months of running from enemies, and three days of the plague. I guess this is a prime example of that saying, pick your poison. David opts for choice number three. 
The other two would force him to rely on men. If there's a famine, he would he must turn to allies for sustenance. If he's chased, he must rely on protectors for refuge or the enemies themselves for clemency. Better to fall into God's hand because that very hand is a loving is that of the loving father. So the plague began and as announced and appointed lasted 3 days with all the deaths the figures reported in the census become practically worthless. This sort of becomes a reminder of this great tragedy. It's only because God restrained the destroying angel that the casualties didn't escalate in Jerusalem. John Gill commented once about this lesson for David, quote, His heart was lifted up by the numbers of his people, and now it must be humbled by the lessening of them. He is indeed humbled, as we see in verses 17 and beyond. But then I think there's another lesson for him here, something we must understand as well. Worship God with the heart of sacrifice. In his second prayer of verse 17, David once again proves that he grasps the gravity of his error, the weight of his responsibility for those under him. The reports of decimated populations from all over the land would have crushed any ruler. To make things worse, and we see there, he got a terrifying glimpse of the cause. And we're told in the parallel passage, 1 Chronicles 21.16, that there's this sword that David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over at Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. Next, the Lord directs David through Gad to a specific location. The angel stopped its path near the house of one Arauna, also called Onan. And here's a quick introduction to him. He's a, uh, Arauna is a Jebusite by birth. And Jebusites belong to Canaanite lineage. They were mountain dwellers. At one point in time, they were, along with others in the land, were greater and mightier than the Israelites. But they committed many abominations for their gods and sinned against the Lord. And so God gave the tribe of Judah the authority to punish them and drive them out. But they could not do that for a while until David took up the challenge himself as king. Back in chapter 5, David and his men conquered their prized city of Jerusalem and it became the Israel's capital. But unlike the rest of his people, Arana and his family were devout worshipers of Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's why he lived among the Israelites and kept his estate, which stood on a mountain named Moriah. Since threshing wheat depends on the wind to blow away the useless chaff, it makes good sense for the floor to stand on high ground. Now, Arana, I have to say he's an interesting character because of what it says in 1 Chronicles 21, 21. It says there that he turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but he continued threshing wheat. Like that, there's that doomsday celestial force of destruction about to consume us, and he's like, okay, kids, go inside. I've got to keep on working. 
Now, I'm not sure exactly what Arana was thinking there. But the man does react to the king approaching him, going out to meet him and pay his homage. David explains how an altar must be built on his property to avert the disaster. Arano's on board, and he has no interest in wheeling and dealing. He'll get whatever's needed for the cost, even animals and firewood. But here's where we see David shine again. The sweet psalmist of Israel worships with the heart of sacrifice. He will not receive any giveaways. His words in verse 24 are worth repeating. No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So he pays what I assume to be the fair market value. The floor costs 50 shekels of silver. But we also learn in 1 Chronicles 21-25 that David ends up buying the whole place for 600 shekels of gold. After the sale, the king obediently builds the altar and sacrifices burnt offerings and peace offerings. The chronicler adds that God answered them from heaven by fire on the altar. The Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land. The plague was withdrawn from Israel. So ends the story of David in the books of Samuel. Of course, there's more in 1 Kings. The narrator of the Samuels leaves us with the lasting image of a worshiper who understood the meaning of true sacrifice. And I see two types of sacrifice to be relevant here. One I call personal sacrifice and the other ultimate sacrifice. First, David values personal sacrifice. We just saw his unwillingness to offer up freebies to God. That would be uncostly sacrifice, and that's an oxymoron to him. And it should be to us. His prayer in verse 17 also shows personal sacrifice. He truly believed the blame should land on him and the royal house. If David could take all the suffering on his shoulders, he would. But he can't do that. God won't let him. The Lord doesn't say yes to this shepherd's offer of substitution for the sheep. David's not allowed to be the hero in the end. And I'm like, why not? I mean, if I was God and I'm, I'm writing this grand story of redemption, I would have allowed David to go out with a noble sacrifice. I like David. You guys like David too? You know, He's like a good hero figure, right? If I wrote this story, he would have died for his people, memorialized as the great ruler. None would match him after him. But no, God didn't write his story that way. The king can only react to the Lord's mercies. He's not allowed to act and be the Lord's savior. He's simple just like the rest of us in need of mercy. That's why the story of the Bible goes on. I like how Alistair Begg puts it. Quote, David somehow or another realizes that he's part of a drama that is far bigger than himself. 
So this man after God's own heart becomes another signpost on the road to something better ahead. And that road is to Calvary. And this is where I talk about ultimate sacrifice. We must always keep in mind the ultimate sacrifice, even as we worship with the heart of sacrifice. Again, it's fitting that we conclude 2 Samuel 24 with the scene of the king calling on the Lord at the altar. That draws him in to that long line of godly men of faith. It started with Abel and the men of Seth's line back in Genesis 4. Later in the same book of Genesis, the patriarchs also worshipped the Lord like this. Now, Abraham in particular is most relevant to David's story because it was at a mountain of Moriah that he offered up Isaac. Perhaps the threshing floor was the very same spot where God spoke to Abraham and provided the substitute. It certainly is where Solomon's temple will be raised. But even that grand project of David's successor was not the ultimate sacrifice. You have to move forward. A thousand years after David, there's another son of David, the one who's even greater than the temple itself. In fact, the rituals in the temple, the observances, the requirements of the law foreshadow the substance that's in Christ Jesus. The sacrifices of God's people would only point to Christ's ultimate sacrifice on the cross. So even as we offer costly offerings to God, know that we cannot outgive Jesus. We cannot outgive our Father in heaven. Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us, and we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. So all that we can do, all that we can give now, in response, is thanksgiving and praise. All that we can do for Jesus in return is gratefully remember his ultimate sacrifice. Let's do that now as we observe the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that given us glimpses of faithful men throughout history, faithful women throughout history. It's not that they were there to be lionized and be exalted beyond measure, nor but they are to be seen as examples. Fallible as they are, they trusted in you. And then we see David, a man after your own heart, failing and confessing, and Lord, we take that with us as we also fail and as we also confess. But Lord, we continue to worship, knowing that even our own sacrifice does not rectify our wrong. It does not save us. But it does point to the greatest sacrifice as we look to you, as we look to your son. We thank you that it is through him and his blood that we can approach you. May we always remember that. May that give us a heart of gratitude. 
pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.